0: Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 10. Hey, we've made it a decade here. Where we're traveling to 1952, and the 10th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in music, Gail Kubik, for his orchestral piece Symphony Concertante. So, Andrew, I don't know about you, but before researching for this podcast, I had very little knowledge or hadn't even heard of Gail Kubik, really. So, i oh, well, see. I beat you. I've okay. heard. Ah, you'd heard. Well, I, think, I should say. I hadn't heard Gail Kubik.
1: I had read Gail Kubik's name in these lists of uh, American composers from the 1950s, and then there would be Gail Kubik. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's all I knew.
0: Not a piece, not a...
1: Not a piece. Nothing.
0: Okay. Nothing. Yeah. I had also heard just about nothing about him. Uh, I figured he was a male because no woman had won the Pulitzer Prize until (laughs) the 1980s, so we figured that was at least something. But uh, it's interesting that... Gail Kubik actually has quite a good pedigree, and I think maybe a good way to start talking about him is to put connections together between our previous Pulitzer Prize winners. And this is the first. Not only was Kubik the youngest winner, and st-
1: he was he was the youngest until Caroline Shaw.
0: Yeah, that's right. Thirty-eight, only I think.
1: Thirty-eight. Yeah, so young.
0: Yeah, so he was born in 1914, but he studied with two of the previous winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music that we've discussed on this podcast thus far. That's right. uh, Studying with Leo Sowerby and with Walter Piston. So uh, quite an interesting background.
1: Well, he was also, uh, he's one of these wunderkinds, right? So he was 15 when he goes to Eastman to study. Yeah. um, Getting a scholarship. Yeah. he was uh, graduated in, with violin and composition, the youngest graduate they had. He was teaching college when he was 19 years old. I mean, he's wow. very much, yeah, he's a prodigy. And I think that also plays into, he's young enough that even here a decade into the Pulitzer, we can have people who studied with previous Pulitzer winners now winning the award.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and what's also interesting, too, about this particular Pulitzer Prize winner, if you remember in our last one, which was... The very uh, skimpy information about <laughs> Douglas Moore. Uh, Douglas Moore wrote a uh, opera about Lawrence, Kansas, which is close to where we both are. It turns out that all of Kubik's papers and documents and manuscripts are at Kansas State University right. in Manhattan, the one in Kansas. And so that's uh, also kind of interesting, another Midwesterner uh, composer here. But very, uh, yeah, very prodigious or very you know, much a prodigy uh studied at eastman uh, I, if he if he could only have studied with howard hansen it i would, know we'd have three connections. <laughs> three connections but he did not unfortunately
1: <laughs> no he started with bernard rogers the
0: the other the com- other half <laughs> yeah the other half right uh but just looking through his his uh, bio here mcdowell colony fellowships um pre uh, it was a pre to rome or uh, guggenheim or some other big Types of awards.
1: Yeah, he got the Guggenheim twice.
0: Yeah, twice. I mean, really quite a prominent career and very, you know, all these a presidential citation from Roosevelt. I mean, very involved in the government. So you think, well, this person's got to be a well-known composer now. And we're going to, you know, after we discuss this, we'll talk about what might have happened to Gail Kubik.
1: Well, and going back to experiences with Kubik, it was one of those things that, You know, as we're researching this and listening and getting ready for the podcast, I have the music on. And my wife, Joy, was asking, what's going on? Who's this person? And so I was mentioning some of the things that Kubik's known for. And she said, oh, yeah, we've heard a piece by Kubik. And this is how little I knew that there's nothing to hang on. The name just goes over the head. (laughs) But uh, for a long time at UMKC, they had a, a kids club where they would perform classical works for kids in the community. And they could come on a Saturday morning. Like and Peter one the thing the they did was Gerald McBoing Boing, oh <laughs> which is a Gail Kubik's score that he then turned into a score for a Oscar-winning cartoon, hmm. uh, written by Dr. Seuss. But he turned it into basically a concert piece where you play his music and there's a narrator. And I had heard that you know a decade ago with my kids. But it went completely over my head that it was something that I'd heard because I just had nothing to hang on. It was more, oh, that's a piece that has Dr. Seuss lyrics as opposed to that's a piece by Gail Kubik.
0: And you probably remember Gerald McBoing-Boing because that's something that would certainly stick out. You could remember that pretty well, probably. Absolutely.
1: In fact, maybe if you want, I I did download a little bit of Gerald McBoing-Boing. We (laughs) could listen to a little bit of the the music so we can get our first taste of Kubik here. They say it all started when Gerald was two. That's the age kids start talking. At least most of them do. Telling the Story So I wanted to have that played because this is now how we know Gail Kubik is the work that he did for films, for television. He was uh, one of these multimedia composers and even though we had said when we talked about Virgil Thompson that he was the only film score to ever win the Pulitzer Prize, this is like one degree of separation from a film score because this is symphony concertante is a piece based on a film score.
0: Hmm. And is this uh, cause I see he did a lot of work with the government, or a lot of uh in Hollywood and sort of these document not doc I don't know if they were documentaries, but sort of Well he did I for guess the they were for,
1: Yeah, for the government. Yeah. Um he was uh, part of the first motion picture unit of the U.S. Army Air Corps during the uh. Second World War. And so that was part of his job, was composing these uh, wartime documentaries. So if you look at his list of documentaries that he scored, it's all these names of, you know, very much, here's how you clean your gun kind <laughs> of thing.
0: <laughs> well, compare this to, or compare or the films that he's doing to the one that Thompson did for... Uh, the one that we studied, the Louisiana story. I mean, is this uh, the music for this? Is it kind of tied up into it? Or is there actually a film? Remember we talked, there, the, there wasn't much of a plot or much of a film at all. Uh, but that was, I think,
1: aspiring to art. These uh, really are not. Functional, so, kind of. Yeah, here, here are some of the titles of the documentaries that he scored. Um, Men Power, Paratroops, Air <laughs> Pattern Pacific. Ooh. So, you know, it's, it's yeah. very functional to get information across. It's not the kind of uh, what we think of as a documentary, a narrative documentary that we saw with, say, Thompson, hmm. which is aspiring to a more artistic presentation of truth as opposed to a more kind of literal news side of truth.
0: That's, yeah, it's pretty interesting to see... Uh, Because then the the question comes up, and I think when we get to the piece shortly, is does this piece work by itself as an actual piece? Because it has a different name. It's not called Mm -hmm. the movie title like Louisiana Story was. Uh, It's got a different name, and does it work? So uh, before we get into the notes a little bit, uh, just a fun fact about uh, Gail Kubik. He had four wives, and he was married four times, so uh, he was... Very well connected, and as well, he, he lived in Europe for quite a while, too. So
1: yeah, he lived in Italy jet for mm-hmm. a long time. Yeah, yeah, Fascinating, fascinating life.
0: Yeah, yeah. So shall we go behind the notes here? Yeah. Behind the notes. So the way this score came
1: about is kind of circuitous. It's not one of those... Um, very straightforward, like we've been exploring for the past, basically, decade <laughs> of the Pulitzer Prizes. So it begins in 1949 with a drama called Seaman. And that's not, a, not
0: S-E-A, but no, letter like C, C, right? Yeah,
1: yeah like C. Um, and do you know what a
0: Seaman is? I'm guessing it's something with the military. A treasury. Oh, Treasury. Oh, C-Note. Yeah. Like a C-Note? It's so C-Note. Oh, yeah. ah, okay, okay. So it's a Seaman, yeah. yeah.
1: So that's the <laughs> the basic score uh, was for this, uh, about the Treasury Department's customs agent who's going out and, you know, he's not, not exactly James Bond, <laughs> but he's going What a thriller. It. It's a thriller. Yeah, what well, it is. It's a thriller yeah. about a Treasury customs agent. So already,
0: <laughs> you reaction Simpler times, mine. weren't they? Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, I watched a little of the film. It's a short film. Mm. So about an hour and 10, 15 minutes, a very short film. Uh, but very much low production values. The <laughs> acting is not B-grade acting. The camera work is not good. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's one of those, I don't know if you ever watched Mystery Science Theater 3000 that made fun of old movies, but mm-hmm, it's, it's mm-hmm. one of those that you'd expect people today would look at and can get a good laugh out of, yeah. sadly. <laughs> but it's an excellent score. It really is a very... Yeah. Uh, the score is of a higher quality than the film. So evidently... uh. Conductor named Thomas Sherman of the Little Orchestra Society mm. uh, asked Kubik <laughs> to write a piece and said, "I have three instrumentalists. I want to feature a viola, a trumpet, and a piano." And Kubik went, "Well, I just wrote this film score, and so he adapted it into the three movements Symphony Concertante, but he named it different because about half of it probably is coming from the film score."
0: That was my question. It was. Uh I think from what I read, that it's mainly the second movement. So three movements. The second movement, which is slow, is mainly from the movie. And then there's other parts that are excerpted or... uh, Yeah,
1: there are other parts that kind of go together. Um, In fact, I put this together for us to listen to the opening of the film so we can hear the first 20 seconds. Uh, Actually, the first 20 seconds will be the 70 concertante, and then the second 20 seconds will be the opening of the film. So you can kind of hear the comparison.
0: (laughs) ¶¶
1: So there you can hear a pretty clear correspondence but he has even at that the opening has begun to rewrite it so it's this kind of thing where you can track through and find um, elements but he's completely recontextualized everything except that second movement
0: hmm. well uh, as soon as i saw the title of symphony concertante it was reminded of the mozart ones which yep. were for orchestra and then a couple of soloists and like I I remember playing one that was for violin and viola I think or two violins Uh, but and so this is kind of in the same old style where you have that the soloist and then you've got the background uh, I don't know if they're ritornellos, but they're uh, at least not really yeah but
1: I'm glad that you pointed out that I mean even calling it with this title is so old-fashioned yes yes for 1951 it's really really bizarre that he did that and I think that kind of shows first the training that he would have had with people like Walter Piston Mm -hmm. and with Nadia Boulanger
0: and Sourby too. Sourby
1: right these are very traditionalist composers but then I don't know about you but as I was listening to the piece I felt like I was listening to knockoff Stravinsky.
0: Uh, (laughs) Yeah I I was gonna say even uh, it sounded like knockoff Copeland the short symphony kind of that's oh sure yeah the word I sometimes see it described as a kind of yeah <sighs> bit, kind, das, of kind of the rhythmic really propulsive and the shifting meters yeah, shifting meters all that kind of stuff is really really prominent so yeah stravinsky copeland all that stuff from the 20s 30s uh it really is reminiscent of that except you have these really long i don't know if they're cadenzas or uh sections like the piano goes off for quite mm-hmm. a while does its thing and then you have the trumpet which is really quite a difficult trumpet part yeah, and the, the recording—the one recording that I found—the gives it a good shot. Couple of couple of clams in there, but pretty good <laughs> otherwise. Um, and then, well,
1: and the second movement yeah, is like
0: I'll showcasing trumpet. the viola. Oh, the viola and that's the right. trumpet.
1: Yeah. yeah, has this beautiful viola line. Um, and it's also interesting how many times it's almost as if the rest of the orchestra isn't even there. Yeah. Especially that second movement, he has a lot of doubling between the trumpet and the viola, where they either play exactly each other's lines just you know separated by timbre um, or they do a little thing in counterpoint but it's really like their show for that second movement
0: yeah very much so and it's it's like you said contrapuntal I think that's a big part of it as is his teacher's music particularly piston particularly interested in that Uh, and it's got that kind of sound to it that it's tonal sort of uh, it's like sort of uh, maybe pitch centric uh, without a key signature, but maybe around D or around C or something like that. And just a lot of dissonance floating in and out, but it still has still grounded like Piston's music in yeah. a lot of ways.
1: Oh, it's very much. In fact, I think if we hadn't even said this is a student of Walter Piston, and people listening to this podcast probably would have picked up if they went and listened to them. Partially because they're so close in time of when they won the Pulitzer Prize but I think also because that there's that huge kind of connection between that, as you were saying, pitch-centric, that I was interested to read some of the contemporary descriptions saying his music's so atonal, and like, it's not really <laughs> no, atonal not at all. Really, no, not <laughs> really, um, It doesn't have, you know, nice 5-1 cadences no. like you would expect of a tonal piece, but it is very pitch-centric. You can hear that it, it keeps circling back around to specific pitches.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, that part of it, what keeps it interesting, I, I I felt that it was a little long. I felt the first and third movements kind of dragged a bit, but uh, it's that rhythmic propulsion that makes oh, it really, keeps it alive. yeah, keeps it going or else it'd be really kind of dull. Uh, but it, it's, uh, I, I, well, you've seen the movie now. So to that question of does this piece fit as a solo piece or as, as on its own, Uh, As a chamber piece or does it really have to have the movie or is does it is that enhanced?
1: Yeah, I think that the it's different enough from the movie that I think it holds up as a independent piece Um, In fact Kubik later looking back on this piece. He was asked about it and he said um, Whenever you're writing for the symphony right not for a movie He said you have to have a music that is written to absolutely command all of your interest Whereas the functional piece, (coughs) right, for the Seaman, the functional piece, if it commands too much of your interest, it's not very good functional music because it begins to get in the way of the dialogue. A music you start listening to with all your interest obviously detracts from the film. It was just murder because these (laughs) things that make a piece work as a functional score were precisely the things that would have ruined it as a concert piece. Hmm. And I think he's right. He did enough uh, slicing and dicing to make it work as an abstract piece. I mean. In terms of the craft, it holds together oh, yeah. as an abstract piece of music. Um, you can follow the logic as you're listening to it, all those kinds of things. And for me, what you're pointing out with the rhythm, that's really what makes the piece is, is this kind of da-da-da-da-da-da rhythm yeah. that just kind of the shifts that keep happening and the interplay of those three instruments. In fact, I got uh, one small clip that I made, so you can kind of hear the instruments as they're going to pass off um, one to the other in a short little amount of time. So you can kind of hear how I was using them individually.
0: Hmm. Thank you. Yeah, that really makes a lot of sense, kind of clarifies how he's using these instruments in that particularly old setting, but it's pretty effective, I think, overall. And uh, are you curious to know what the judges might have said about this piece, or why it became the winner? I think absolutely it's time for us to hear what the judges had to say. All right, well, who who do you think had the the first word here? I'm sure Chalmers <laughs> Clifton. Of course. <laughs> you could did. always count on Chalmers <laughs> We're going to
1: be sad if we don't have Chalmers script anymore. I know. Whenever
0: he steps down, it's going to be a sad day in hearing the Pulitzers. So he says here on April 5th, 1952, uh, Mr. Norman Lockwood, I don't know who that was, and I recommend Gail Kubik's Symphony Concertante for the 1952 Pulitzer. Uh, and he says, Mr. Kubik was born in Oklahoma in 1914 and has already has... It already has, to his credit, an imposing list of compositions in many forms. And then, uh, this is a brilliant and exuberant work full of rhythmic vitality. The orchestration is both original and skillful. The judges are in complete agreement in recommending this work for the Pulitzer Award. Okay, so that kind of just supports a lot of what we just said, what makes the piece attractive and interesting. The alternate winners... Have you ever heard of Lachram Johnson?
1: Whoa, that's the name of him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or is that, yeah, Lachram Johnson, uh, with his piece, A Letter to Emily, a short opera on, this, on a scene of the life of Emily Dickinson. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then the second piece uh, was Comedy on the Bridge, a short opera on a folk theme by Bohuslav Martianu, who's a Czech composer who right. lived in America for a long time. And then the third is Louisville Concerto for Orchestra by Otto Looning. Hmm. So those were the choices. Oh, actually, there's more. I forgot. There's another page here. They have five uh, options here. Uh, let's see. We also have Dai Kong Lee Symphony Number no. 2. Okay. All right. And then finally, Ross Lee Finney String Quartet Number no. 6. So there there are your 1952 uh, (laughs) possibilities. There were 82 compositions. They received a record number uh, by that point. That's
1: remarkable. 82 is remarkable. Yeah,
0: it is. So, yeah. So should we uh, anything else, or is this going to be a hit or miss? We'll have to dig in here on that. I think it's time to to make our
1: predictions.
0: (laughs) Hit or miss. All right, so what do you think, Dave? Hit or miss? Interesting question. Uh, I'm <laughs> gonna say it's a hit, actually. I, I I like this piece. It has a attractive sound to me. I kind of like that music, like uh, Copland's Short Symphony and mm-hmm. L'histoire, and those sorts of pieces that have the rhythmic vitality to it. So, it, it let me put it this way: it made me want to hear more of Kubik's music. Yeah. Unlike some of the other pieces we've talked about so far where i'm sort of satisfied that's all i need to hear <laughs> uh, but, but in this case i uh i i yeah i like it and, and we talked about this a little bit before we recorded but how someone with such a great pedigree and really prominent training and some prominent pieces and notoriety has just become completely gone just just dis- yeah. like no one's ever heard of him so how about you what do you think and you've got the, mu- oh, the movie
1: is, no this is Definitely a hit for me. Yeah, and it was a surprising hit. It was one of those that, you know, we started plotting out this podcast and we talked about the pieces we'd be looking at and the the names we didn't know. This wasn't even one of the pieces we even joked about. No, it was just completely <laughs> overlooked. And so I thought, okay, we're in a dry spell. We'll kind of plod through here and yeah. we'll get to some good pieces eventually. But then I sat down and I watched the movie first, and I thought, okay, the movie's not that good, but the music was, I thought, <laughs> very effective. And then I was surprised at how effective he was at turning that film score into a listenable concert piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with you that I think it goes on a little bit too long. The movements are a tad, especially <laughs> the second movement, for me yeah. was the one that was a tad too long. I could have cut off like the last third. But the first and f- third movements had that rhythm of pr- propulsion. Mm-hmm. And like you, I have a, a soft spot for Copland's um, short symphony and I love those that types stuff. of. Yeah. yeah, I absolutely love that as well. And that kind of um, 1920s neoclassic sound, Mm -hmm. I love that sound. Mm -hmm. And so to hear it done skillfully and then recognized by the Pulitzer Prize Board, I think was um, absolutely a good choice on their part.
0: Yeah. And this, I think, helped Kubik become even more popular because then he started getting some commissions by the New York Philharmonic and he wrote three symphonies, I think, at least for, and one for them and uh, got more, got something out of this. But then yeah, like some of our other previous winners has just just gone by the wayside here.
1: Well, I think you have a couple of things working against him just looking, you know, biographically. So there's that time that he spent, you know, uh in the 1940, uh, 1950s and um, all the way up to like 1960 that he was in Italy. Right. So that's the time at which this is kind of the hot spot that we've already been talking about of oh, uh, yeah. these kind of connections being made and these composers getting known in a broader sense. So I think that's a strike against him. And I think the second strike against him, frankly, is that he was so well known for doing things like Gerald McBoing Boing or (laughs) (laughs) paratroops, or, you know, he was doing this functional music. That is exactly what he needed to be doing as a (laughs) composer, but doesn't have the prestige.
0: Yeah. Well, if there's any silver lining here on the Spotify list for Gail Kubik, Gerald McBoing Boing has over 37,000 streams. whereas (laughs) whereas <laughs> Symphony Concertanta has less than 1,000. And I think I added probably four or five more to the list, Just so maybe I'll push him over the, the num- number. But uh, at least he's still, it, people may not know the name Gail Kubik, but Gerald McBoing-Boing is still in
1: Well, and in commission for all of you here. listening, if you have not seen Gerald McBoing-Boing, it's about a <laughs> six-minute video. You need to go watch this cartoon. It won an Academy Award. Frankly, I think the music, if they had been giving Academy Awards for cartoon music, there's... High likelihood it would have won. It's super effective. The entire thing is charming. Hmm. You should definitely go and listen to. Well, I guess watch Jerome yeah. <laughs> Boing Boing.
0: I will. That sounds great.
1: <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, HearingThePulitzers.com, where you also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about Gail Kubik. We'll put a link up there for Joe Boing Boing for <laughs> you too. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at HPulitzers for links and trivia between episodes. And then finally, for a first, join us next episode where we'll be exploring the first time the Pulitzer board did not award a Pulitzer Prize in music. That's a little bit of a cliffhanger. Till then, (laughs) keep listening.